Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Fabulous Hollywood, celluloid Babylon, glorious, glamorous, city delirious, frivolous, serious, bold and ambitious, and vicious and glamorous, drama, a cityful, tragic and pitiful, bunk, junk, and genius, amazingly blended, tawdry, Tremendous, absurd, stupendous, shoddy and cheap, and astonishingly splendid, Hollywood. Hollywood. Well, maybe not all that. But by way of introduction to many of our deep dives during this show, composed by Don Blandon and performed by Matthias Bambal. The poem first surfaced in 1934 in MGM's Night at the Coconut Grove. And next on Arts Express... In the days after the Sandy Hook shootings in 2012, I was thinking about how to react to the tragedy and the American obsession with guns. There's a homemade rifle. I'm kind of feeling it. So I actually just bought an AR. And particularly about how widely available assault rifles were. We will have to live with weapons in our country forever. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. If a week goes by where there isn't a mass shooting, I start to wonder what happened. Did I oversleep? The American mass obsession with guns is clearly unique, and filmmaker Richard Chisholm has made an intriguing short documentary called Gun Show, which details one artist's attempt to come to grips with the national gun worship. Chisholm documents the story how, in 2012, after the Sandy Hook killings, now which one was that? They all start to blur in my mind. David Hess, a Baltimore-based sculptor, wondered how he could take what he was feeling and turn it into art. He wanted to do a work that would spur a discussion about guns without overtly taking any sides. So working in his barn-like tool shed, he took discarded detritus, plumbing pipes, bicycle parts, crutches, junkyard items, broken microscopes, and fashioned them into facsimile guns. They had a heft and weight and structure, each one different, but of course not capable of firing a bullet. They were the stuff of a child's imagination. Flash Gordon movie props come to life. And Hess's plan was simple. Take a road trip with the mock guns in the back of his car and display the guns in different settings. Let people touch and hold them and listen to what people have to say. Well, his first exhibition of the guns was at an outdoor arts fair at a college in Asheville, North Carolina. And the children and adults in attendance were instantly interested. They were allowed to pick up the guns that Hess had laid out on a mat alongside one of the college campus walking pads. And the fascination was palpable. Whether people were pro-gun or anti-gun, they picked up the pieces, posed with them, laughed, and people started talking. A woman told of her dead Marine husband being killed by guns in Vietnam. Another woman picks up one of the sculptures and says, I feel strong, it makes me feel strong. I feel like Patty Hearst. 
A man in his 20s says, I'm from the South. Everybody has a gun. It's odd if you don't have a gun. The first time I used a gun, I shot a bluebird out of a tree and cried after that. Hess listens to their comments and stays firmly neutral in his response, a slight smile always on his lips. But later, Hess makes a big leap. He reserves a table at an actual gun show. There are many other tables, but of real guns, and the people in this space are not art lovers or curiosity seekers. They're there to buy guns. Hess, of course, is nervous, but steadfast. Eventually, people do walk over to his table, and as they slowly realize what this is all about, a big grin comes across some of their faces. They pick up the items, and a, a childish glee comes over them as if they have finally connected with the childhood wish of fantasy power they've been chasing all these years. Some ask Hess if the mock guns are for sale, but Hess says no, they're just for display. A flicker goes across one person's face, and you can see him thinking. And maybe it's the first time he's thought of art this way before. So it's just for show? Man, that's cool. Hess is next invited to a community group in Baltimore, and he lays his wares out on the floor in front of many black children and their elders, all of whom are quite politically aware. Hess asks them what they think of the guns. But none of them feels the need to pick up the guns or play with them. For them, this is a somber moment. The children speak eloquently of the destruction that guns have done to their loved ones and to their community. One adult says the world of guns and the love of guns is a lesson in how we fetishize the very things that destroy us. The discussion and feelings are profound. Well, Hess continues his road trip to New York City where he lays his wares out on a mat on the corner of 14th Street and 5th Avenue as if they were a gross of counterfeit Gucci handbags. Well, New Yorkers, of course, are not shy about their opinions, and the diversity of experiences and ideas are shared with Hess and other onlookers. Some of the New Yorkers seem to bring a particular sense of irony in their relationship to guns. Even as they proclaim their hatred of guns, they can't help but admit thrilling to the power of holding these mock items. And Hess's final stop is Washington, D.C. at an outdoor plaza populated by many international visitors. Now, the Europeans are befuddled as to the American fascination with guns. To them, it seems psychopathic. Even one man who says he was a policeman in Northern Ireland cannot understand the gun obsession. A gentle Cambodian man gets into a discussion with a local young college student who admits that he has just bought an AR-15. After about 15 minutes, the college student seems amazed by his own ability to stay cool and have this civil conversation with someone he completely disagrees with. A woman offers that she feels safer with guns out in the open where she can see them. But a man replies, I've never walked into a restaurant with someone having a gun strapped to his back and felt safer. Well, the film ends with Hess saying that after four years of doing this work, he feels incomplete. I think David Hess is a good man with good intentions, and if his job was to spark discussion, well, then he succeeded in that. But I suspect that if he feels incomplete, that that was inevitable by design. Were his efforts in the end intended to actually change anything? And that brings up the idea of what are the limitations of art? What can art do and not do? Well, one thing that Hess's work in this documentary did bring out for me, and maybe this was the most important and useful realization for me, was that in the sheer diversity of human faces and bodies, even in Hess's small sample, I was never sure what person would say what, who would feel one way or the other. What I'm saying is that it made me more aware of my own inner stereotypes and what a barrier those stereotypes are to my really communicating with other people. And the film also made me think about two books I've been reading recently, 
Don DeLillo's dystopian novel, White Noise, and Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's book, Loaded, which is a history of the Second Amendment. Well, Don DeLillo's White Noise, written in 1985, is about a futuristic society where toxic clouds of noxious gases are common and the fear of death is widespread. There's 24-hour government surveillance amidst unending media promptings to consume. The protagonist is on a search for the maker of a top-secret drug that will absolve the taker from the fear of death. But when the protagonist cannot get a hold of the drug, he decides that only a gun can help him defeat the fear of death. Only the ability to kill another human being can make him feel like he will live forever. And it's only after he gets shot himself that he realizes that he can't cheat death. Not even a gun can help a mortal species be immortal. So is that what the gun culture is all about, the fear of death? Then why only in America? Presumably other cultures have a fear of death as strongly as we do. And no other country has a Second Amendment. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's book, Loaded, suggests that the actual origin and defense of the Second Amendment have been widely misunderstood, both by gun control advocates and those who want to uphold the right to own guns. In the courts, the constitutional debate has been about the words well-regulated militia in the Second Amendment. Do those words give the government or the individual the right to bear arms? Now, gun control advocates argue that the phrase a well-regulated militia refers only to a government-controlled defense force and not the individual, and that therefore, gun control measures affecting individuals are well within constitutional law. On the other hand, the argument from both right-wing and left-wing gun advocates is that the individual has to maintain the power to stand up to a tyrannical central government. So, which is it? Is the Second Amendment about the government's right to raise an army, or is it about an individual safeguard against tyrannical rule? And Miss Dunbar-Ortiz makes a very strong historical case that will surprise those who see themselves on either of those two sides of the debate. Because what she says is that actually this legal argumentation is a total misframing of the entire question of guns in America. Perhaps because the actual truth would be too hard to admit. With tons of evidence, she shows that the gun control advocates have to be wrong. The rights to guns were, in fact, for individuals, not the government, so that they could, when wanted or needed, form themselves into small, voluntary militias. But, and this is the part that is alighted over most of the time, the purpose of these militias were not, as the gun advocates insisted, to guarantee the right of opposition to tyrannical rule, but to guarantee to the new white settlers the right to destroy the native and indigenous people on the land that the settlers stole from them. Dunbar Ortiz goes into exhaustive detail on the frontier myths and how the West was one with guns. The constitutional promise by the elite framers of the U.S. Constitution to the white settlers who would do the dirty work was that they would be allowed to continue with their gun possession and their extermination of any nations or people that stood in the way of land expansion. And later, those gun rights would be extended almost without thought as a way for the white property owners to defend their stolen property, in particular, their slaves. And it's the unique circumstances of settler imperialism and a slaveholding system that made white Americans so dependent on their guns and so deeply attached to the Second Amendment. In short, Dunbar Ortiz says, the Second Amendment was created to guarantee the right of white supremacists to form militias to kill non-whites. That was its purpose and is its continuing purpose. And until that is confronted, no amount of Supreme Court wrangling about governmental versus individual rights or states' rights versus federal rights has any real meaning. So, what is to be done? Ortiz pointedly does not have a concluding solution chapter. 
Short of a repeal of the Second Amendment, that is, short of a revolution, there cannot be any legal recourse. The courts are a dead end. The facts are there are militias throughout the country with boatloads of weapons. The government and the police forces, too, have nightmarish numbers of weapons of the most destructive power possible. They'll never be restrained under any imaginable law. In the face of this, what does the individual right to carry a gun mean? Are they instruments of resistance? Or one more foolish way to kill ourselves? The problem is, they're both. I honestly don't know what to do. I don't even know if I could pick up one of David Hess's mock guns, knowing what the real ones have wrought. I don't think there is a solution to the gun problem under our current system of government and economics. I've been talking about the short film documentary Gun Show, directed by Richard Chisholm, distributed by the Media Education Foundation, and also talking about White Noise by Don DeLillo, recently optioned for a film starring Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig, and Loaded by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Listening to Arts Express, and coming up next, Bro on the Global Film Beat, checking out drama on and off screen. In this case, House Speaker Pelosi and her confrontation with China over Taiwan. Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bros got the takeaway pertaining to Chinese cinema, Pelosi, Wolf Warriors, and Joe Biden's neocons and China asserting itself perhaps nowhere more prominently than in their cinema. First, a particular side of Pelosi compiled by Avalon Comedies, Splitting Images. Speaker Pelosi, the representatives from the African American Voters Coalition. Wonderful. I want you and the entire black community to know that I stand with you. We're hoping to go over our action plan with Black Lives Matter and... I'm sorry, were you wearing that scarf when we came in? Oh, the kente cloth. Uh, It's my signature accessory. And let me assure you that I empathize with your struggle and share in your pain. Habari Gani, that's Swahili for what is the news. Anyway, in light of recent events, wait, when did you put on that dashiki? The important thing is that we move our cause forward together. I eat! Speaker Pelosi, the representatives from the Gay and Lesbian Alliance. Wonderful. I want you and the entire LGBTQ community to know that I stand with you. Thank you, Madam Speaker, because we have many pressing... Wait. I didn't notice your vest when we came in. Oh, this. (laughs) Well, you can't keep something like this in the closet. (laughs) Funny, Madam Speaker, but... Okay, you definitely weren't wearing that when we came in. Just know that I empathize with your struggle and share in your pain. Ah. Madam Speaker, Rabbi Horowitz from the Jewish Alliance. Rebbe, Rebbe, Kamin, Mazel Tov. Is this some kind of joke? That's Michigan. I stand with you. I feel your pain. This is an <gasps> insult. A shanda is what it is. Perhaps you should come back later, Rabbi. Speaker Pelosi is not feeling well. 
I'm afraid that the speaker has come down with a bad case of panderitis, an irresistible compulsion to pander for votes from every identity group. It's entirely involuntary at this point. Is it serious? Very serious. I share in the pain doctors face when they get the yips playing golf. It's becoming so blatant that no one will ever believe her again. There is one cure, but it's highly experimental. In fact, this is the first experiment. We make her look at herself in the mirror. With no one to mimic, she'll be forced to return to her original identity. Or she'll have a nervous breakdown either way. Well, she's been locked in there for a week without food or water. Let's see what happened. Oh. <gasps> my. Oh. God. Oh. Oh. I became what I really am. A creature that lives only to absorb any and all voting blocks. I am not in the big tent. I am the tent. I am the... See how this plays. This is Bro on the Global Film Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, The Battle at Lake Zhangjin, China's on-screen contesting of American aggression. As House Speaker Nancy Pelosi readies an announcement of a state visit to Taiwan, most likely to stoke calls for Taiwanese independence, China continues to warn the U.S. about upping its level of aggression in a land that both the U.S. and China have affirmed for almost half a century is a part of China. The U.S. media has been nonstop waging an ideological war against China with the New York Times including an almost daily obligatory negative story on some aspect of Chinese policy. Likewise, in a recent review of two books on Hong Kong, the Financial Times with invective from both the books and the reviewer, described the Chinese leader Xi Jinping as ruthless and Chinese leaders in general as promoting totalitarian vandalism, as being living fossils of Leninism, as well as rich, mighty, cruel, and corrupt. The review ended with a final assessment of the leaders of the world's second largest economy as thugs. Meanwhile, Margaret Thatcher, who almost single-handedly destroyed the British working class, is viewed as refreshingly libertarian. The Western capitalist corporate media cannot stop chiding China for its draconian COVID lockdown policy, a part of which is simply a prod on the part of Western leaders to push China back to full production of cheap goods needed in the West to assuage populations which, with both the recession and rising inflation, otherwise cannot afford these commodities. The media point also is often to keep Western audiences from making a comparison between the authoritarian Chinese system and the democratic system in its handling of the pandemic. In June 2022, the U.S. attained the horrendous peak of over 1 million deaths, most in the world, or 3,042 deaths per million, with its allies in Europe not doing much better at 2,434 deaths per million. China, meanwhile, for the same period, registered 5,226 total deaths, or 3.7 deaths per million, sharply contesting the old Orientalist adage that people in those countries don't value human lives. Had the U.S. followed China's draconian methods, it would have had 1,307 deaths instead of over 1 million. China's policy was also better for business because in the COVID lockdown, the Chinese economy continued to grow, but at a slower rate, while the U.S. economy contracted. The Chinese, though, are asserting and defending themselves. Nowhere more prominently, perhaps, than in the cinema, where last year's box office bonanza, The Battle at Lake Changjin, available on Netflix, about Chinese entry into the Korean War for the purpose of, in the film's argument, defending the just successful revolution from American aggression. Lake Changjin was not only the highest grossing film in Chinese history, with a sequel already released this year, but also was last year's second highest grossing film in the world at $913 million, and that included Hollywood releases. Chinese audiences flocked to see the film, one of the most expensive ever made, with a budget of over $200 million, commissioned by the Chinese Communist Party and released on National Day, which celebrates the birth of the People's Republic in 1949. A triumvirate of Chinese directors, Shang Kai-ji, Dante Lam, and Tsui Ark, whose Taking of Tiger Mountain was a momentous World War II epic, directed the film, which stars Jackie Wu, the lead in two previous action blockbusters, 2015's Wolf Warrior and 2017's Wolf Warrior II. 
The differences in the villains in Light Shangjin and Wolf Warrior are instructive in understanding the difference China has traveled in its response to the concerted bellicose intentions of Joe Biden's neocon foreign service. The Wolf Warrior battles and bests a rogue ex-Navy SEAL in the former, while the might of the Chinese army faces and routes the superior technology of the U.S. forces in Korea in the latter. Wu Chongli, Jackie Wu, returns in 1950 from the Chinese Civil War as an honored commander of the People's Liberation Army's Rough and Rowdy 7th Company. He has been promised a piece of land, which he intends to cultivate to take care of his parents. This is not to be, as he and the 7th Company are quickly called back into battle as the Americans are threatening to cross the Yalu River, the border between Korea and China, and bring the war to China, with the American commander Douglas MacArthur, one of the villains of the piece, shown at his most aggressive and bellicose in wanting to invade China and crush the revolution. Wu Zhongli and his rebellious younger brother who joins the unit face multiple challenges in battling the superior American air and armored tank force. From the air, the American bombers strike and decimate the train transporting the company, and they then have to wade through the mountains in snow and ice to reach their goal. One of the major points of the film demonstrates on the battlefield what Giovanni Arigi in Adam Smith in Beijing qualifies as the industrious quality of the overwhelming might of the Chinese population versus the industrial might of Western technology. The men of the 7th Company play dead in order to avoid American strafing from the air. Later, in a battle against enemy tanks, one of the company's stalwarts sacrifices himself to drive a jeep with a marker for the American bomber pilots behind an American retreating column, so the pilots mistake the column for the enemy and bomb it. The relative poverty of the Chinese economy versus the American in 1950 is stressed, as at Thanksgiving the Americans share turkey and stuffings, while the Chinese in the mountains above them pass around potatoes, which they divide into quarters in order that they all may eat. Nevertheless, the film shows the Chinese victorious and features an extended scene with the American soldiers in retreat. Lake Chongjin in its presentation of the colorful characters of the 7th, utilizes many of the tropes of the American World War II platoon film, such as Battleground and Bataan, including stressing the democratic nature of the People's Army. Unlike subsequent American films, where the enemy is often either faceless or vicious, the American soldiers in several scenes are humanized, shown equally as nervous as the Chinese about preparing for battle. It's their leaders, pushing them to fight in a far-off war, who are the problem in the film, and not them. Nevertheless, the film does make several relevant points clear, which ought to, but probably won't, function as a caution to current U.S. policymakers. The first is that the Chinese will fight to the last man and woman to defend their country and to defend the revolution. Wu Zhongli and his cohorts call to battle is that this is the war to end aggression and to aid Korea. The film sees the designs of the Americans in approaching the Yalu River as part of a plan to crush the revolution, and the men talk about fighting this war so that future generations won't have to fight. Indeed, the Chinese intervention in Korea secured, at least for China, over 70 years of peace and the ability to develop its economy. As such, the Korean intervention, as viewed by the film, may be seen as akin to the civil war after the Russian Revolution, where Lenin, his party, and the Russian people had to battle the combined force of European and U.S. Western capitalist states, equally bent on crushing their revolution, in Churchill's famous phrase, strangling Bolshevism at its birth. The second is that there is a new, renewed, and more vigorous interest in China today in the origins of the People's Republic. Mao, a figure of total disdain in the Western media, appears in the film as a reasonable figure who does not want to go to war after the years of the Civil War, but recognizes that it's necessary and allows his son to join the fighting. There is particularly a renewed interest by Chinese youth in Mao and Marxism that is similar in the U.S. to the way that, also among the youth who are watching their future and the future of the planet deteriorate under capitalist war and income disparity, the word socialism can now be spoken. As Anthony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, Victoria Nuland, and the rest of Biden's neocons, who promote aggressive rhetoric, which would make those from the two Bush administrations blush, and as American democracy descends into the candidate from one party flirting with announcing his candidacy for president to avoid being arrested, and the might of the other party using the legislative apparatus to label their rival candidate criminal because they have fulfilled none of their promises and thus cannot beat him any other way, American democracy 
does not appear to the world as a shining beacon against Chinese authoritarianism. The lesson of Lake Shangjin, which enjoyed such widespread support within China that the film set the world record for domestic box office, is that a fading empire had better think twice about what seems to be its hell-bent path to a war that may only result in another American retreat. This is Bro on the Global Film Beat, signing off and breaking glass. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And the Battle of Lake Chanchin can be seen for free online at BillyBilly.tv. That's B-I-L-I-B-I-L-I dot TV. And coming up next on the show, sadly, two giants of the big screen just passed away within two months of each other and starring together in Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas back in 1992, Ray Liotta and Paul Sorvino. And here to share memories of those Goodfellas is actor Christopher Cerrone, who at the age of just 12 years old played Leota's younger self in the film in his portrayal of real-life mobster-turned-informant Henry Hill. First, some memory lane scenes from Goodfellas with Ray Leota and Paul Servino as Paul Cicero. In prison, dinner was always a big thing. We had a pasta course, and then we had a meat or a fish. Paulie did the prep work. He was doing a year for contempt, and he had this wonderful system for doing the garlic. He used a razor, and he used to slice it so thin that it used to liquefy in the pan with just a little oil. It's a very good system. Paulie and his brothers had lots of sons and nephews, and almost all of them were named Peter or Paul. It was unbelievable. There must have been two dozen Peters and Pauls at the wedding. This is Marie. Plus, they were all married to girls named Marie. And they named all their daughters Marie. This is Marie. And this is Pete. No, I mean Paulie. I get confused myself. The guy who disappeared up the block from Christie, the one that made the beef on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the guy I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's his name was Bats, and these people are driving everybody crazy looking for him. They should leave him wherever he is. Nobody knows what happened to him. He came into the joint that one night, and then he just disappeared. That was it. All right, keep your eyes open, because they're busting my balls about this bastard, all right? Okay. All right? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. 60000 <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud of you. That is a lot of money for a kid like you, all right? Anybody ask you where you got it, you got it in Vegas playing craps. All right. All right? Uh Yeah? All right. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that's what it's all about. That's what the FBI could never understand. That what Paulie and the organization does is offer protection for people who can't go to the cops. That's it. That's all it is. They're like the police department for wise guys. You want me to be your partner? That's what you're trying to tell me. You want me to be a partner? Yeah, what do you think I'm talking about, Paulie? Please, come on. It's not even fair. No? You don't understand. The joint is over. Oh, you run the joint. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll try to help you, all right? God bless you, Paulie. Okay. I appreciate it. God bless you. Always been fair with you. All right. Yeah, of course. I was just stalling for time. I knew I still had to later 9 o'clock to talk Jimmy out of killing Maury. But meanwhile, as far as Jimmy knew... I was going along with the program. Shoot the guy? He's dead. Good shot. You miss it this distance. Well, you got a problem with what I did, Anthony? No, no. Rat, anyway. His whole family's all rats. Would have grown up to be a rat. Kill you. Doesn't happen that way. There aren't any arguments or curses like in the movies. See, your murderers come with smiles, they come as your friends. The people who have cared for you all of your life, and they always seem to come at a time when you're at your weakest. Yeah, of course. Oh, I'm still gonna go out. Not without your car keys, you're nuts. Are you nuts? What's your problem? Yes, I'm nuts. Something's going on. Stop with that already. No. No, stop with that. No! I'm telling you, I look in your face and I know that you're lying! Hello, Barry. How are you? Okay. How are you? And welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful. 
Now, you were just 12 years old when you starred in Goodfellas with those two powerhouse actors, Ray Liotta and Paul Servino, who both just sadly passed away within two months of each other, Paul just a week ago. What has it meant to you to have worked with each of them on Goodfellas? Uh, well, actually, Barry, I was only 12 years old, so it was incredible. I was I was a, a, a kid among giants, mm. and but I was never meant to feel that way. I was I was immediately taken under under their wings and treated as if I was a nephew or even a son in some cases. Mm. Uh, I was so lucky that my introduction into the film industry, which is not always easy, uh, was with people of, of, of like them. I mean, everybody from Martin Scorsese down was just incredible. They recognized my youth and innocence. Mm. And what was the impact you felt upon hearing of their deaths, first Ray and then Paul? Well, I mean, to be honest, Prairie, when Ray died, I I felt like I lost uh, like an older brother. Mm. During the prior to the filming and during the filming of Goodfellas, Martin Scorsese used to send us all together. He thought it was important that we would spend time and see how we interact uh, for like continuity sake. If Ray had a particular way of clearing his throat or scratching his ear. He wanted me to not only see that, but uh, replicate that, emulate that on film. Now, you played the young Ray Liotta as real-life mobster Henry Hill in Goodfellas, your first film. What are your memories of playing young Henry, those challenges as a real person, and developing the character with Ray? So, uh, you know, I was only 12 years old, so I obviously I didn't have a lot of life experience mm -hmm. or even film knowledge to draw from. So I really did go into the role kind of blind. Uh, I had to do a lot of searching on my own to find the truth of Henry Hill. And I mean, for me, what I did, I, I literally went into the neighborhoods that I grew up in Queens where that element of life was. And I would, I would literally, as cliche as it may sound, I would people watch. Uh, I would see the guys show up and how they interacted with one another. Mind you, there were no children there. But, I mean, I, 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 I took from it what I could. Uh, one thing that Ray Liotta told me during, during one of our many hours together um, was actors have a way of acting. He goes, you don't ever want to act. He goes, you, you want real emotion. Real emotion comes only from one place, the heart. Yeah. It comes from the heart. It will never be acting. Uh, no, and I was just going to say, and, and to this day, that's what I use. I try to find the honesty and, and the truth in what I'm doing versus acting as someone. Yeah. And did you get to speak at all with Henry Hill to flesh out your character? Oh, no. In actuality, Henry Hill was a prominent figure on the set every day. Oh. He was a uh, technical advisor on the film, obviously, and he was there to give his opinions or what have you. And uh, I was lucky enough to have met him several times. I'm still actually very good friends with his widow. And any memories of him? You can put Henry Hill, his, the man himself, in a room with Robert De Niro, John Wayne, Buzz Aldrin, and Mick Jagger. And Henry Hill, by the end of the night, will be the only celebrity in the room. He was, he was such a, he would tell a story, everybody would listen. He had a, mind you, he wasn't, he was not a large man, he was actually very small to stature. But his personality, his, his, the way about him was larger than life. And what are your memories of being directed by Martin Scorsese and Goodfellas? And did it have a creative impact on you? You know, Martin Scorsese is a very unique director. He, uh, he, he, he's, uh, he's what I like to call an actor's director. So here we are on set. We have a script. 
we have our action logs that tells us what we will be doing. But he, he always said, make it your own. If you wouldn't say that in real life, so long as the meaning is the same, make it your own. He didn't direct us. He, he allowed us the ability to do why he, what he hired us to do. He brought in the best actors. He gave them their reign. He brought in the best editors. He gave them their reign. He didn't. He never held anybody back. And I think I think a director that does that not only has confidence in his actors, but he's also very courageous because he's putting his vision for his film in the hands of someone else. Now I see that you star in the upcoming film Pumpkinhole about quote a washed-up baseball star hallucinating pumpkins a year after running over a trick-or-treater on Halloween. So are you the character hallucinating pumpkins? I am. So uh, this is my first horror film ever. You know, uh, when I read this script for this film, I was so excited about it because, I'll be honest, as an actor, I think it's important to do to show your range. Uh, this film, I don't wear any pinky rings. There's no silk ties. I play a washed-up professional baseball player that's battling demons of drugs and alcohol, resulting in hitting a trick-or-treater on Halloween. The guilt and frustration of, of everything uh, follows my character over the course of a year, and it shows the progression of his uh, mental decline. It's one of those films where you really get to watch the acting and really appreciate the script. And any parting thoughts about Ray Liotta and Paul Servino? Well, you know, I, I mean, you can imagine how often I've been asked about Ray and Paul uh, over the last month or so, especially with Ray. Um, you know, men like them, They've made such an impact. They've made, they made they made their own legacy. And you know, not to sound corny in any way, but legends never really die. Mm-hmm. No, I was just gonna say I, I think that's that's the best way I could put it up. Thank God we have a lot of their films that whenever we want we can go revisit. Okay, thank you so much, Christopher Cerrone, for calling into our show. Well, thank you for having me, Prairie. I love, I love your name. <laughs> okay, bye. Have a great day. And Christopher Cerrone will be out soon in Pumpkin Hole later this year. And we'll go out now with the Arts Express screening room and an excursion into What is Cinema For? It is recognized that you have a funny sense of fun. Cinema is the most prestigious cultural activity in the modern world. It is for us what theater was in the age of Shakespeare or painting was in the days of Leonardo da Vinci the art form with the biggest impact, the largest budgets, and the most widespread audiences. Collectively, we recognize that film has an astonishing power to induce emotion, but it would sound weird to stop and ask what film was really for, what purpose it serves in our societies, and why we spend so much time in its presence. We don't generally think of films as serving any very strenuous or serious cause, We ask for a lot of nice but not terribly lasting things of films. To while away the hours of a long flight, to keep the family together on the sofa, to give us a bit of a thrill. This is a great loss for us and for cinema itself. We should try to pin down more accurately what films actually do for us, then make sure we're reliably making and finding our way to seeing the best, that is, the most useful kinds of films. We would ideally accept that film, like all the other art forms, best reveals its power when we conceive of it as a kind of therapy. Let's consider five key problems and how films can help us with them. 
We're understandably prone to self-pity. We get ground down and frustrated by the problems life throws at us, and we tend to react by getting ever more stern and serious. Certain films can beautifully address this natural tendency when they show us people not too different from ourselves in difficult situations, except very much unlike us, these films play our pains for laughs. They seek the absurd side of the exact things that we normally greet with excessive seriousness. At their best, there's nothing trivial about these comedies at all. They take on the momentous task of sweetly edging us towards being slightly nicer people to live around. You have three seconds to get back to your seat. Oh, you can't get anywhere in three seconds. Well, you better try. You're setting me up for a loss already. Okay, thank you. Whatever you say, Stove. It's Steve. Stove, what a kind of name is that? Sometimes in life, an action that seems quite small goes on to have enormous consequences. You tell a little lie, you steal a tiny bit, you're a bit dishonest with someone, you get a bit lustful and carried away just once, and then from this, a catastrophe ensues. Films can help us by speeding up time and showing us, in a matter of hours, the fearsome result of what we might originally have thought of as small failings a film can push the consequences to the maximum. By witnessing horror and disaster, it can make us want to be the kind of person who is a touch more forthright, a little more honest and moral, readier to face an unpleasant moment now and thereby head off a distant disaster. We leave the cinema less inclined to be self-righteous about the failings of others, scared for ourselves and more respectful towards things we hold dear. It might sound odd, but it's usually very healthy and helpful to feel that one's life is a bit special, deserving of admiration and respect, a little glamorous. But very often the opposite is the case. Glamour lies elsewhere, in the lives of the famous, in swankier parts of town, in activities and jobs far removed from our own. Film has an enormous power to glamorize. It can put in front of our eyes delightful images, many meters in size, shot in extraordinary colors, vivid and immediate. Because so many films glamorize the wrong things, we're used to thinking that an element of alienation and corruption is a generic rather than an incidental danger of cinema. But in fact, film is well able to show us the less obvious but real charms of an everyday life. Whereas the worst sort of films eject us back into our lives, full of longing and disenchantment, the best ones leave us ready to re-engage with circumstances with which we'd unfairly grown bored. Cinema can help us love and appreciate what we already have. It's not entirely our own fault. The media is to blame for much of it, because it tells us about categories of people we want nothing to do with, places that seem frightening, bizarre, unremittingly depressing. We grow to think we're not at all interested in people in Iran or Venezuela. Our disenchantment may get expressed as racism or arrogance or just plain coldness. Ultimately, what we suffer from is a denial of our common humanity. Cinema can perfectly compensate us for this withdrawal of emotional energy by showing us the appeal of people far away we'd otherwise be completely uninterested in. With the highest artistry, we're reminded of an obvious but so easily forgotten fact, our membership of the family of humanity. We've gone so far down the track of teaching ourselves about the importance of gentleness and compromise, many of us have unwittingly developed problems around courage and self-assertion. Decent people have learned so well to suppress their own appetite for a fight, their own desire for a victory. But in a world where conflict is unavoidable, good people sometimes need to strengthen their willingness to face down opposition, not always to compromise and play it safe, but to take risks and to get out and fight to relish victory and to be a bit more ruthless in the service of noble and deeply important ends. But we must march, we must stand up, we must make a massive demonstration of our moral certainty. Sometimes 
It's not enough just to be right. You also need to win. So some of us might well benefit from seeing films that tell tales of heroism, that follow someone who has to navigate the world, kill a dragon, outwit some baddies. The film shouldn't ideally leave us just in awe at the daring of another person. It should do that far more valuable thing, educate us by example, so that we too become just a little bit more heroic and brave where we need to be. Cinema, as we currently know it, is not a million miles away from doing wonderful things. But in order to help with the real business of living, we need this hugely compelling and powerful art form to set out in a more determined and systematic way to offer us the help we really need. The way we categorize films should ideally get a little bit more subtle. Rather than say something was merely a thriller or a comedy, we'd put the accent on what these genres might achieve for their audiences. Instead of suggesting that one needs to be above a particular age to watch a film, the Government Classification Board would see its primary task as that of helping a film to reach the audience it could best help. Thus, a film might be rated A, meaning that it was regarded as being particularly good at getting us to address and cope with anxiety. Or it could have an MC rating, meaning that it was of benefit to those experiencing marital conflict. Films can do so much for us. They better direct our feelings of sympathy. They offer comfort for our unmanageable fears. They correct an unworkable sense of what is normal. They edge us towards good conduct. They caution us and arm us against our folly and vices. We should, as societies, be ready to see them as more than just entertainment. They are, at their best, guides to life and pieces of spectacular applied philosophy. And thank you, School of Life Collective. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.